we're in the book of Mark together. I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're doing something a little different. You'll actually notice that in this text, Jesus is, answer, is asked questions. He's asked questions in the text. And uh, I'm kind of engaged. I'm kind of intrigued by that. And I don't know if, I do, if you remember me doing this at all in Atlanta, guys, but I'm going to actually entertain questions and answers while I'm speaking. So this is not merely a monologue. Now, that might be a little intimidating. It certainly intimidates me. But, but uh, I want us to have some of that. So if it comes naturally, it comes. I mean, I'm, I could, believe me, I could talk for a solid hour like that. Trust me. It's not a problem. But enjoying, I'm enjoying some of the living dialogue. And we'll notice even here in the style and manner of Christ's teaching, there is an engagement. There's an engagement with concerns and questions of the people that he's speaking to. And I find that kind of, I find that pretty winsome. And I like the idea of being able to do that. So we're going to read it. Now, we're about to read a narrative from the book of Mark. We are in the midst of a string of narratives in the book of Mark. Mark is a well-organized piece of literature. And there are a series of incidents about, I think there's five of them in a row, of Christ's increasing conflict with religious types. This is a great concern to me because I am a religious professional. I am a religious type. So I find this kind of thing very telling, very immediate for me. And I think all of us should. And so Christ is an escalating conflict. These conflicts are getting worse each one, as each one comes. Now, the thesis of Mark, which began in the first verse, was the gospel of, 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 uh, of the Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this thesis of, of, of Mark's is what he is setting out to prove. Let's read this together and, uh, and see what we can make of it together and see what we can learn together. All right? Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to them, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Father, I ask for wisdom. Not just wisdom for me, but wisdom for all of us. That comes from you. Forgive, them, forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for there are many. Let us all together grasp your word with fullness and, and richness and, and joy. In Christ's name, amen. So, 
a little bit odd. Might be a little odd to some of us. There's a, um, Christ actually used a, a familiar rabbinic way of responding to a question. A question about fasting. And he does three quick, almost off the cuff it seems, three answers. Three parables. And parables, we could say, they're like three illustrations. Three illustrations immediately. And I want you to notice there's a wonderful technique to Christ's preaching. It's just salty. It's just so immediate. You know, it's so... What do you do? What do you, we, they, everybody, back then, the water, was, the water wasn't any good. In Philadelphia, that's what we call it, water. And uh, the wine, you, they, you drank wine instead of water. You did. Because wine was better. It wouldn't get sick. You wouldn't get sick. So, so uh, they were always drinking wine. Um, how many of you have sewed a button on? I mean, it's just like, it's, and there was nobody to do that. So maintaining your garments, maintaining your physical, constant. So it's, uh, it's clothing, clothing repair, clothing repair. And the first one is going to a wedding. And these are three things. Think about how completely ordinary this is. I, there's a, there is a, this is a little bit of a side, but Christ's gift, that sounds weird when I say it that way. It was a gift to us, I guess is to use such ordinary things. Let me look. Bread, wine. It's all tactile. It's all immediate. It's all meant to get past. It's not sophisticated, right? It's not intellectualism. It's, it's all a material pieces and parts of you and I, of our lives, the way we live. And I love the idea that in, the, in our lives is all this stuff that, 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 that Christ minds. He, he, and he, and he, and he, anyway, it's kind of a... Wonderful, uh, his style of teaching is very powerful. But uh, getting back to this parables, so there's this unfolding kind of bam, bam, bam with the question, why don't you fast? Now, a little bit on fasting. Now, and the the reason I want to bring this up is I think this is going to take us into a place where we can begin to ask questions. I want to ask you some questions and see if you can if you can identify. Now, the cross is going to represent Jesus, and, and this is a, supposed to be in space and time across an unfolding history. Remember, I, as we started worship, I said there's an unfolding sense in the, our writings from the Old Testament through the, through the New Testament of an unfolding and expanding reality. Now, in the Old Testament, there was only one, only one feast, Does anybody, uh, one fast. Anybody remember what it was? There's only one fast in all the Old Testament law in the Pentateuch, and that was for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. And to this day, uh, I, I don't know if fasting is so common on that day. I think it is with conservative Jews. And so it's, it was called the Day of Fasting amongst, amongst, amongst rabbis, even to this day. Now, as we kind of come right in here, right around Zechariah, is where, where, where it's really mentioned. In Zechariah, Zechariah is back in, is one of the last books of the Old Testament, eight, chapter eight, 19, four different fasts are mentioned. Now, those, they become a tradition. And the people of God have, were, were taken into, there's this wonderful, there's a, there's a tr- terrible crisis, and, um, and the people have forsaken their, their religious allegiances with syncretism and, and, and idolatry. And God, they're put in captivity, it's what's called. It's great captivity, and they go to Babylon. While they're in Babylon, they start fasting. 
which kind of makes sense in the text, doesn't it? You fast when you don't have something that you want. You fast when you're still, when you're incomplete. In other words, you take into your body and you enact as a way, almost like a, uh, a play or some sort of living out, a yearning for something else by experiencing physical yearning yourself. And you're, you're identifying that. So what they did is they started in the Babylonian captivity to fast. And by the end of it, when they had come back to Jerusalem, they had four fasts. And... Uh, they, they, they were, there were four of them, in the, on the fourth and the fifth, the seventh and the tenth month. And they, were, they, 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 they commemorated at four different events. Uh, the breaking, remember when Moses throws the law down? When Charlton Heston throws the law down? I realize that I date myself when I say that. Uh, but he throws the law down, the breaking of the tablets. That's one. Uh, another one is uh, uh, the, when Gedaliah is killed in, in 2 Kings 25, 25, when, in front of the altar, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. That was one of the fasting days. Another one was when uh, Jerusalem was sieged, uh, when, when Jerusalem was besieged. And so, and so these, these became a habit, and, and, but they're at it. They're, no, they're nowhere prescribed or somehow commanded anywhere in the, old, in the Old Testament writings before Christ. But when Christ comes, these have been entrenched as a part of every day. If you were, if you were serious, you fasted. It had become, it had become part of the religious trappings. And, and unfortunately for everybody, uh, and unfortunately in that time, it had become a show, in fact. Uh, you make a show of being fasting. You, you make, a, make a really clear, you, make, you might put a little ash on your head. And, and we walk around like this. <laughs> so hungry, you know. And, and you know, you do something, but it, as absurd as it sounds, but that's actually what people were doing. They were actually making sure that the observance was observable, <laughs> that, the, that the activity was transparent. Why? Why would well, people think you're a, you're a good person? And so the religious people of, of Christ's day, these, these Pharisees and even the disciples of John, this, this, is, this is an attack. This is not a friendly query. This isn't a, hey, why aren't you? This is, why, have you, why are you not doing what we're doing? Why do people ask questions like that? Let's pop with this. What, 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 what's going on here? What's, what's beginning to, what do you sense? If you're not doing what I'm doing, What's, what's, what's part of it? What's, what's implicit in that? What's one of the problems? It's an accusation. Excellent. It's an accusation. And also, just, just pull that a little bit. What kind of hearts are making accusations? You get this? What, what's, pull at the heart that wants to make sure that Johnny is doing what McLaren's doing, what Clayton's doing. What's going on here? What kind of a heart wants to do this? Insecurity, I love it. Uh, why is there insecurity? What's one of the insecurities that these people are experiencing as they are constantly, you know, saying no to their bodies? What's, the, what's one of some of the insecurities that they're, why, why do people act religious? They're insecure about what? Come again? How bad they are? How bad they are? Okay. Pull it down, down a little bit more. Why do you go to church, Amy? Why do you go to church sometimes? Maybe it's not you, but... Oh, go ahead. All right, go ahead. Um, 
Okay, all right, very good. And let's, let's pull at that. Not only that, it's... What's their standing? All right, what I love, it, what, what we love, I'm saying this communally, all of us love this. We love clear marks that tell Jessica she's a good girl and she, ha, she is one of the good people. We love it. We love to be a people who can accumulate merits and a sense of accomplishment about who we are spiritually. It is deep. Because <laughs> there's an insecurity that you're, maybe you're not what? Maybe you're not good enough. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're not good enough for God. And so, in effect, what is Christ attacking? What's, what's, what's Christ attacking here by the virtue that his, his disciples don't do what they do? What's he attacking? The very foundations of their religious commitments and why they make them. When we get to chapter 3, verse 6, you know what they're going to decide to do? They got to figure out how to kill him. That's how much is at stake here. <laughs> this isn't just the, you know, this is a, you know, when you start threatening the means by which and the places by which and the, and the, and the power by which I say I'm better than people like Will, <laughs> then I'm better than other people. What, what are you doing? That's a, you're threatening my entire religious system. And what's my response to that? I hate you. I hate you. You're, you're oh, it's, it's terrifying. They also, I think they fasted twice a week and uh, Mondays and Thursdays usually as well. So, um, all right. Uh, Something's happening here, though, and I wonder if you see it. I wonder if you can see it with me. Um, there's something happening here. Did you notice that there's something peculiar about the way Christ is talking about himself? Did anybody pick up on it? Look at some of the language. Has anybody noticed that there's some cryptic, almost... <laughs> What do you see? What do you, and, this, and the hint here is that I think there's something about Christ's stature that even we now have a hard time grasping. What do you see? What, what is Christ claiming about himself? What's, it, what's his language look like to you? Anybody see it? Sense it? Feel it in the text? Why? Why is he claiming? And I think Luke, Luke nails it, right? Why is he claiming, how is he claiming to be the Son of God? How is, it, how is he making the claim? Okay, yeah, right. All right, so he's, he's peppering it with language. Actually, you'll see, he says, there'll come a time when the bridegroom's taken away, when the bridegroom has come. And he starts using language pregnant with suffering servant and anticipation of a suffering that's coming. He has already begun, and, and this is something I don't want you to miss about Jesus. He is so, is that, are any of you like painfully self-aware? Anybody like that at all? Like you're just a bundle of nerve? Thank you, thank you, so am I. 
It's like a pain, it's like I feel like I don't have any skin sometimes. Like I'm painfully self-aware of myself, you know? And uh, I'm like, I hate that. But Jesus is wonderfully self-aware. And he's aware of his place and his purpose in history. Because what is he saying about the, the, the rite of fasting? He's saying it's legitimacy and it's practiced hinges on what? Him. Who talks like that? Imagine, if you will, for a moment, and let, let's, let's, give, let's give these ancients and the, and the Pharisees and the religious people of their day their due. Let's give them their due. Because their offense is partly the, the way Jesus is talking about himself. He is hanging, he is hanging the purpose and intention and practice of the Old Testament rituals as having legitimacy based upon whether he's present. That, that's wild, right? <laughs> Nobody talks like that. But we realize Jesus has already been talking like that. Remember when uh, early on when he says uh, in chapter 1, verse 15, the time, has, the time has been fulfilled? As if he was saying to people, and I think there's a good way of reading it, do you know why there's a clock on the wall? Me. I'm the reason for the clock on the wall. Time hangs on me talks like that? Who thinks like, and so their offense is because they begin to grasp what he's really claiming. I'm always concerned that we have not, and we will not get Jesus big enough, get his greatness profound enough to see why it's so important for him to attack our attempts to be righteous. What an act of love it is for Jesus to come and say, your attempts to be righteous don't mean anything anymore. I am here. (laughs) I am here. I am here. The day of atonement will no longer be a day of fasting, will it? What's the day of now? It's a day of feasting. You know, it's kind of funny. It's a challenging thing. I, I, I have fasted before. But I always take the table. Because what is the central right of the Christian faith? It's a feast. I, I don't even think we celebrate this correctly. Honestly, I think we all have to have a full glass of wine and a big piece of bread, probably with some, I don't know, bruschetta. Something more than just the, you know, just the plain, something, I know we're doing this symbolically and spiritually and meaningfully the way we're doing it now, but do you, you understand, this is, this is not, this is meant to be a feast. Why? Because Christ has come and you don't have to earn your salvation anymore. You don't have to be a religious person to hope for God's love anymore. That's just wonderful. So Christ is in a wonderful saying, way. All right, so the wedding, there's a wedding and he's the clothing and the wine. It's like, uh, what's appropriate? Um, does anybody remember the metri- metric? I actually found this is kind of funny. They call it the metrication of America. Does anybody? That's actually what it was called, the metrication of America. So I was born in 1966. Um, yeah. And in night, huh? 
1980, which is still before when a lot of you were born, in 1980, they, they began to push really hard for the change to the metric system. And I remember, I remember this as a kid because they were trying, it was kind of funny, they were trying to make an argument for why the metric system was better, as if as a kid, you, you even cared, you know? You didn't care at all. It was just something else to learn, something else to be confused by. I mean, and I remember this. I remember them saying, you know, look, it's tens and everything's by tens, not by twelves anymore. And, you know, all these different, and it's going to standardize everything. And it completely failed. It completely failed to ever become the, we don't have any actual, we don't, uh, uh, we have not, we don't uh, subscribe to the international uh, weights and measures standard. But interestingly enough, in the metrication, all sorts of problems happen. And uh, there's a famous one where, uh, without converting properly in 1983, uh, the plane was uh, only was fueled for kilometers, not for miles, and ran out of ran out of jet fuel over, right over central Canada, and managed to land in a local in a local airport, crash land. It's called the Gimli incident, because it was in Gimli was the airport. It also got even worse, though. That was 15, 16 years after that, even, 1999, Lockheed Martin was one of the contractors, one of the contractors for the Mars climate probe, and they had configured all the stuff they built for the Mars climate probe, they had configured for um, uh, pounds, pounds of force per second versus newtons. And the net result was that instead of flying at 157 miles outside of the, uh, uh, the, in the uh, Mars atmosphere, they, it flew at 53 miles and burned to pieces. Because one, that's what Christ is describing here. The whole transition thing. And he's positioning himself in this great transition in all of space-time history and even religious practice for the Jews. And I think that's why I quoted Hebrews early. I think he's doing the same thing right now with us. He does this all the time. He's doing it to Sarah <laughs> and her calendar. And he's doing it to me. And, he, and, he, and, he, and, and he's, he's demanding a, tra- a transition, right? He's demanding that because he is present, there has to be a switch. And you can't, you can't live in both worlds. You can't, you can't, you have to switch or you, you have to know, either know this grace or you don't know it. It's like you have to either be the, the new wine with the new wineskin, ripe with hope and possibility and the blood of, and the saving work of Jesus or what? Or it's just, a, it's just a, how many of you are just a hot mess? You know, it's like you're, just, you're, you're, you're the explosion trying to put together a faith and a religion that you earn along with some love from Jesus and a kind of, a, I'm going to take Christianity. You get, the, you get the problem? This is a constant problem of, you know, where are you? Are you, are you trying to manage a transition from self-dependence to, the, to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners and the rescue of the ruined in his blood? Because it's one or the other. There's a time for everything under the sun, right? To quote uh, Solomon. I, I think, uh, as I was thinking about this and, and thinking about it in our hearts, um, I was thinking about what, is, what does church look like in San Francisco? And I, it's interesting to me that a lot of times, since then, patterns of religious observance 
become the norm, whatever the new pattern is, right? Whatever it is, whether it's a certain kind of hymn, whether it's an organ, whether, and, and we're, we're not moving towards Christ's work today, you know, Christ's work now of preaching his grace, right? And we're not moving. It's interesting to me, I think this sets up a pattern for us always trying to look for and trying to understand and how Christ is, is uh, in, in his work and in his ministry is now, now, it's now, today, and uh, you know, I, I, all right, so here, here's, the, here's the deal. You know why I don't like doing question and answer for this time? You know why a part of me rebels against it? Because that's not the way Jonathan Edwards did it. And it's not the way Calvin did it. And it but it is the way Jesus did it. But that doesn't matter. Because I get caught up in the norms that I'm accustomed to and that become my idolatry. Think about this. I want to explore this for, together. I don't know if you want to get brave about this, but there's forms of religion that we get caught up in as having a particular meaning, and they really don't. They don't. Christ doesn't live in them in his glory. We live in them because they're safe, and they're, they tell us we're good, and they tell us that we're going to make it religiously, and they tell us that we're the good guys, and they tell us, and they affirm our religious standing, but they don't. They don't Christ doesn't inhabit them. Because they're too small for him. He's too great. Can you think of some ways we do this? Now, there's some things you've loved, some religious observances that you kind of cherish. And I'm not saying they're bad. Fasting is a beautiful thing. Fasting is one of the great works that God does in the lives of believers. But what happens? What can happen to fasting? What does it become? Without the greatness of Christ standing in it, what does it become? Another manipulation, right? Another, another way that religion works for me. Can you think of some ways that you have worked religion and worked your tradition to feel a certain way and had nothing to do with the greatness of Christ? Anybody? Anybody have any, any illustration of that? Anything in their heart? Anything you've loved that you realize is not really, not really a part of what, what real Christianity looks like? What, what, what is it like? Intellectual satisfaction. Intellectual satisfaction. Amen. And, and I, I'm assuming you're, you're, you're saying that this is not intellectually satisfying. So, <laughs> so I appreciate that. Thank, thank you, Luke. Thanks. Thanks. I'm glad we could bust that one open. No, I think that's very good. Uh, one for me is, um, believe it or not, it's a piano and hymns. I love a piano. No, no offense to Nick. I love a piano or an organ and hymns, because when that happens, I feel comfortable. And it was interesting, we'll remember this, when, when we went back in, back in Atlanta, we had a crisis about that, because, you know, there's no worse war than what, 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 uh, what Steve likes versus what Jordan likes on a Sunday morning. And it's not, it has nothing to do with the glory of Christ. What does that have to do with? Well, why don't you do what we're doing, the way we're doing it? Because that's the way it should be done. What, who, how, how, who, we rob Christ. What were you going to say, David? I was going to say, what about church service itself? Yeah, church service itself. All right, okay. Now we're getting, that's a little painful. I don't think I want to, <laughs> I don't think that's up for grabs. We're going to time and again see that there's going to be, we're going to be pushed back to, in a good way to some non-negotiables. So what happens, and this happens in act, what we, what we return to, our basics. It's interesting what Christ, Acts 2, 2, 42 through 47, 
in the initial formation of the church, and that's where we're called First Presbyterian, to be, a, to be like the first church, is it lists the, the things that, that form and shape an eternal, an, an eternal identity. And one of them is uh, the gathering at the table for bread, the apostles' teaching, prayer. There's all these things we're doing. And we know they gathered on the Lord's Day. Now, there are certain people who don't gather on the Lord's Day, Seventh-day Adventists, for example. And so uh, they, by conviction, reject this, the, reject, I think, a, a, a fairly clear biblical mandate. But uh, it's wonderful that it doesn't strike at the, we're still, they're still able to be believers. They're still able to even be that level of difference. But this service, and the time of the service, date, whatever, the length of it doesn't really matter, uh, but the idea of a service, I think, does. Because that is, that's always been the practice. And, you know, I, I, honestly, I want a day. You know what, you know the beauty of the kingdom is? You know what the real beauty of the kingdom is? It's when, I mean, I didn't call you all this morning to tell you to come to church. It's when we all come because this is the place of joy that we love. You see? It's not, if you're coming to church as a, put it this way, and this is a a good, I think a good part of what David's getting at. If you attend church services in order to make a religious observance like they were doing, to say, oh wait, I'm a, good, I'm a good guy. I'm one of the good guys. I'm a good girl. I went to church this week. You don't understand church then. This is the assembly of joy. <laughs> this is the feast. Who has to, invite, who has to convince you to go, to go to a feast? And that's what this is meant to be. <clears throat> what else? Any other idols anybody would like to confess uh, of what, it, what a true church and true Christianity feels like and how it exists? Can you see how powerful it is and how necessary that we, we beat these ghosts down? In every person, in all of our, in all of our I'm gonna, and I want to end with this because I want us to kind of walk into this. In all of our experience as Christians, from, that's, some of us have had an experience of coming to Christ. Maybe some of us haven't. But if you haven't had that experience of coming and knowing Christ, listen to this. I think you'll find, it, you'll find it intriguing. As people experience spiritual rebirth, a lot of times the circumstances under which you experienced it, the church you were going to, the kind of worship they did, the practices they did, those become your norm. And like the Pharisees, you, you take them over time, you don't even realize it, and they become the necessary things. And they become your they become your idol. So certain songs, so in certain ways, and certain times, and certain kind of postures, and a certain kind of tone. And, and you can tell, you can tell when somebody has is when somebody's a fresh Christian, tone's a great one, right? Uh, but you know, I just, you know, I just want to say, I just just saying the word just over and over again. Uh, as, a, as a form of earnest prayer. And, and, and we, we identify, and they become, and then, before you know it, we think there's no legitimate church or spiritual experience that doesn't sound like mine. And then all of a sudden, well, that is, that's, that's the worst, that's the least of the liabilities. I'll tell you what the great liability of that is. We will lose Christ. That's, the, that's what the Pharisees liability. They're missing the man they're waiting for. They're missing the story and the message they're waiting for. Because they thought they were going to get congratulated and capped off and finally finished the religious experience. They weren't expecting the living Christ 
dying for sinners and freeing us from religious observances forever. And now, if you are truly free because the Son has set you free, I won't be able to keep you out of church and out of the things that bring Him glory, give Him glory, and tell us about the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I love your word. And, you know, this, uh, the way that your son talked, the way he walked, the way he, he talked about who he was. There's going to be a time for fasting. There's a time for these religious observances, but only, only, only when they flow from knowing you, adoring you, cherishing you, trusting you. Father, teach us how to give up being religious versus being uh, sold out for Jesus and touched by new spiritual life. Father, would you guard our hearts against becoming like the Pharisees? Because we're all, we're all so liable to it. We've all done it. Would you preach all that freedom and forgiveness uh, that you bring in the table today, in the table of the, 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 the wine and the bread? Would you give us new, new joy and a new, sense of, a new sense of access to you? A new sense of freedom. I mean, Father, if, Lord Jesus, if you've come here today, if you're here today, everything changes. Everything changes, just like it did then. And so I pray that you would be here. In Christ's name, amen.